What up, what up? You're watching Weekends on Jacobin. I have the privilege of being joined today by Paul Prescott. Uh, Nando Vila is out. He is uh, taking a little bit of a break, but he'll be back next week. Paul, I'm super excited to have you on the show, and I'm really looking forward to your decode. You want to give the audience a little, a little teaser? Yeah, sure. Well, it's great to be here again. I hope I can do justice and fill Nando's shoes. Um, but I'll be talking about uh, charter schools today, the charter school industry, um, clearing up some myths, some common held myths. Uh, there's a really great new report that gives some of the reality of what charter schools have been up to. So I'm excited to talk about that. Later in the show, we're also going to be joined by David Sirota to help us, you know, decode a little bit of the uh, debate that's ongoing regarding the Senate reconciliation bill. Uh, that includes all of the big agenda items in Biden's infrastructure bill, which was, of course, stripped away in the bipartisan uh, bill that is likely to pass because it's full of all sorts of corporate giveaways. So what does the future entail for the more important, more robust bill? David Schroeder will help us figure that out. And uh, we're, of course, going to ask him a few questions about the Supreme Court's decision to essentially avoid blocking the anti-abortion law in the state of Texas. Uh, it'll make its way through the lower courts. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, obviously, there are some serious ramifications. And we're not even sure if the lower courts will strike it down. So uh, we'll talk to Sirota about that. In my decode today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the ivermectin stories that have been, you know, flooding the headlines. Where is it coming from? What are the origins of this, you know, dr parasitic uh, virus drug that somehow all of a sudden is considered uh, a treatment for COVID when in reality, there's no scientific evidence indicating so. Um, there are profit motives behind pushing the drug. That's the case I'm going to try to make. Um, but before we get to any of that, uh, I thought that Paul and I could talk a little bit about that Supreme Court decision and what it could mean for the future, just to kind of um, get the audience up to date on where we are with this battle. So the, uh, the conservative Supreme Court has just handed religious zealots a massive victory in the state of Texas, uh, but also across the country in failing to block an anti-abortion law in the state of Texas, which effectively bans abortions past six weeks. Now, the thing that makes this law uh, pretty tricky is the way it's written. And uh, what the state lawmakers in Texas really capitalized on here is the idea that the state won't enforce the ban. It'll be private citizens who are enticed by a $10,000 reward um, who will essentially bring civil suits against anyone in the state who aids or abets uh, an abortion or what they deem to be an illegal abortion. Now, the whole idea is to suck out all the resources from the uh, few remaining uh, abortion clinics in the state of Texas because they're going to be stuck battling in all these cases. Uh, they're going to be tied up in litigation. It'll very likely bankrupt them regardless of whether the suits brought forward are frivolous. And so in response to the Supreme Court's decision to avoid blocking it for now, as the case works its way in the lower courts, um, abortion clinics essentially say, no, we're, uh, we have to cancel all appointments because whether the abortion is legal or not, we know we're going to have to deal with um, these 
anti-choice activists who are literally standing outside of our clinics right now waiting for an opportunity to file claims against us. And I should also note, uh, there were roughly 40 abortion clinics in the state of Texas back in 2013. Uh, Because of previous anti-abortion laws that passed in that state, uh, they're down to 24. So from 40 to 24. And this is about much more than reproductive rights. This is about women's health. Uh, This is about medical privacy rights, um, and also just the ramifications for other constitutional rights in the future. So, Paul, um, just right off the bat, what were your thoughts on this? I mean, it's incredible. And and it really kind of speaks to like how it's easy, or at least for me sometimes, to become become complacent about certain rights that we've won. And, you know, it's like, of course, I've, I've known that, you know, in certain states, abortion rights are under more attack than others or more vulnerable. But you kind of reach a point where like, you know, there's no way they could go that far, right? There's no way we could ever overturn Roe v. Wade. And it just really, which we haven't totally done yet, but I mean, that kind of seems like this is like a path towards that. Um, so I really kind of speak to like, no progress is inevitable. Like we can't take gains for granted. You know, you know, we, for example, I would never think the Civil Rights Act could be overturned, but I mean, who the hell knows these days? So um, yeah, I mean, it's disturbing. And I think I really wonder how, um, you know, abortion rights advocates are going to be responding to this, given like, it's very clear we can't rely on the, the courts anymore. So will that move to a different stage of activism, of civil disobedience? Um, so I'm curious to see like what the response from activists will be to this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what the response from Congress will be, because uh, while there might be some ridiculous arbitrary rules like the Senate filibuster in place, Uh, The filibuster could be thrown out and Democrats could pass uh, a law, federal law uh, codifying uh, the protections for female reproductive rights. Um, But the question is, do they have the willingness to do that? And uh, we'll ask David Sirota about it during our interview segment today. Um, But I also wanted to give you guys um, some more details about what happened, because the Supreme Court, through what's referred to as their shadow docket, did not rule on the constitutionality of the law. They just argued that we're not going to block it in in like one paragraph. We're not going to block it. We're just going to let this play out in the courts um, and see where it goes. The Supreme Court's vote was five to four with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's three liberal members in dissent. And also, uh, just to be clear, the majority opinion was unsigned and consisted of a single long paragraph. It said the abortion providers who had challenged the law in an emergency application to the court had not made their uh, case in the face of complex and novel procedural questions. The majority stressed that it was not ruling on the constitutionality of the Texas law and did not mean to limit procedurally proper challenges to it. Except, I mean, they they certainly did do that. And Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, you know, responded. Every liberal justice wrote their own dissent. Uh, she argues that the court's order is stunning. Presented with an application to enjoin a flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny, a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. The court has rewarded the state's effort to delay federal review of a plainly unconstitutional statute enacted in disregard of the court's precedents through procedural entanglements of the state's own creation. 
the court should not be so content to ignore its constitutional obligations to protect not only the rights of women, but also the sanctity of its precedents and of the rule of law. And so I, I look, this again isn't just about abortion rights. Um, this is something that can impact literally every constitutional right we have if the Supreme Court or the federal courts uphold this law. Because if the state can say, well, I mean, if the state engaged in the enforcement, then we would be, you know, violating constitutional rights. If private citizens are doing the enforcement, then no constitutional rights have been violated. Like that's the argument they're using. And that could apply to anything, by the way, including to uh, Republican priorities. And in a way, it's like I won't I almost don't know what is scarier, like the state coming in and enforcing it or just empowering citizens to like do it for them. I mean, both are obviously very scary, but it, I don't even know to say what's scarier. And I think <clears throat> this is kind of like a broader dilemma we face on the left of how much do we focus on these political institutions like the Supreme Court and the Senate, which we know in many ways are like inherently hostile to us. Their procedures are set up to block progress. So on the one hand, you know, I kind of sympathize with we shouldn't waste our time worrying about every Supreme Court appointment and all this sort of thing. But on the other hand, the right wing over the long term has worried about these things. They've made sure they have their people in place um, to do these things. So, you know, and, and this ex- this situation is an example of like these things actually do matter. Um, but it's a hard balance. Like I don't have an easy answer because I think there's a danger of us getting lost in the sauce of like analyzing everything about the Supreme Court or every appointment. But at the same time, we just can't ignore it. And it does matter. Yeah, I think what the right wing in America has, other than funding (laughs) that the left does not have, is the willingness to engage and coalesce around these long term projects. Um, there's a lot of division in the left right now regarding, um, you know, the long-term projects that really we need because there are no shortcuts. So, you know, people look at the idea of organizing and empowering labor as like something that's just going to take too long. We don't have time. And I get that. But really, I mean, what other option is there? I mean, we could look at the successful case study on the right and maybe utilize some of their tactics, although I do also admit that the left has certain disadvantages that the right wing does not have, including the issue of funding and all of that. Um, But at the same time, I think that, you know, only relying on electoral strategy or only relying on theater or like, I don't know, poorly organized boycotts and things like that, it's not going to get us anywhere. And I think we've kind of seen that. And the problem, and hopefully I'm not preempting you here, I know there's a tweet from Sirota about what the Democrats could do about this, but the problem also for us is that those that are on our side, kind of, that are in power, that do have power, are not using it. So, like, you know, we we do have, Democrats do have a majority in Congress, there are certain things they can do, and are not doing it. And then, to me, that fuels this very dangerous cycle of, like, they're doing that, so then it's like, why should we care about our institutions? Mm -hmm. Why should we be voting if... If the whole idea is premised on these people have power to do things and they're not going to do it, why should we care? Um, so there's no easy answer. I mean, it's just a really big dilemma that, you know, we we try to fall in line when we're supposed to. Let's elect Biden. Let's get a Democratic majority. And then we're not seeing the action that they can take, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm really looking forward to having that conversation um, with Sirota. Um, I do want to know what uh, the progressive lawmakers in the House are planning to do in regard to, you know, withholding their vote in, in a specific circumstance where it makes a lot of sense to do so. Right. right. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but before we get to that conversation, we've got our decodes and we got to show our sponsor Verso a little bit of love. So Paul. Take yeah. It away. So let's let's move to some briefly better news. Uh, Verso Book Club. Fall is coming up. You want to curl up in a nice sweater, read a good book. So join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag for as long as you're a subscriber. And all memberships are 50% off for your first three months. And the Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in September, you'll get these four books. First, Everything, All the Time, Everywhere. How We Became Postmodern by Stuart Jeffries. We have Everything and Less, The Novel in the Age of Amazon by Mark McGurl. Revolution and Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso. And last but not least, Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones. So get a nice fall book, Anna. I don't know if you, you got, I got a whole stack of books that I need to read, but I can add some more. Um, I'm actually re- reading a book by Piketty. Um, okay. It's like a, a sequel to, I just started it. I want to make sure I get the, uh, it's a sequel to, um, Capital, and it's titled Capital and Ideology, and it's really good um, so far. I've only read two chapters, uh, but definitely check that out and check out Verso, of course. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get to our decodes. Yeah. I actually uh, wanted to talk about something that a lot of people were talking about this week, and that's ivermectin as a COVID treatment, which, of course, it is not. So Joe Rogan, the man with the largest and most influential podcast, uh, recently disclosed that he tested positive for coronavirus. What caught everyone's attention about the COVID announcement was what he was doing to self-medicate following months of rants against coronavirus uh, mandates, uh, against mask mandates. Uh, So let's watch the video he posted on social media explaining what he was doing to treat himself. Got tested and turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it, all kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin, Z-Pak, prednisone, everything. Pregnisone, Z-Pak, you know, uh, ivermectin. The thing about ivermectin, which is meant to treat people who are suffering from a parasitic infection in their intestinal tract, is that most people pushing it don't actually take it. Uh, But Joe Rogan somehow was convinced that ivermectin would be a treatment for coronavirus, even though there is no scientific evidence indicating that that's the case. Uh, But Rogan, who's, again, openly against vaccine mandates, genuinely believed that healthy Americans didn't even need the coronavirus vaccine. In a previous episode of his podcast, he said, quote, I'm not an anti-vax person. In fact, I said I believe they're safe and I encourage many people to take them. I just said, I don't think that if you're young, healthy, a young or healthy person that you need it. Now, he did receive a lot of backlash for it. So he walked the comment back a little bit saying, quote, I'm not a doctor. I'm an effing moron. And I'm a cage fighting commentator who's a dirty stand up comedian. I'm not a respected source of information, even for me. 
But the problem is, whether Rogan likes it or not, for a lot of people, he actually is a respected source of information. So he has a little bit of a responsibility to dig in to claims that something that's meant to treat parasitic infections could somehow help someone who's suffering from a highly contagious virus that impacts their respiratory system. But nonetheless, uh, there was another shocking ivermectin-related story this week, and it had to do with a judge in Ohio who ordered a hospital to administer the dewormer to treat a hospitalized coronavirus patient. Now, the drug, again, which is commonly used for parasitic infections in livestock and sometimes in humans, uh, has not been proven to treat or prevent COVID-19, which made this ruling so shocking. Now, Judge Gregory Howard wrote that doctors treating 51-year-old Jeffrey Smith shall immediately administer ivermectin to Smith, according to court documents. Smith will receive 30 milligrams of the drug for three weeks. Now, look, it's unclear if Smith was vaccinated, um, but I'm going to take the liberty of speculating that it's highly unlikely because if you did get the coronavirus vaccine, the likelihood of you being hospitalized is incredibly rare. It's minimized uh, to a great extent. And same goes for dying from coronavirus. You might get a little sick. Some people might even have um, some moderate symptoms. But the whole point of the vaccine is to prevent you from getting deathly sick. Now, um, Smith tested positive for COVID-19 on July 9th, and then he was hospitalized and admitted to the ICU on July 15th. He was put on the hospital's COVID-19 protocol of the antiviral drug remdesivir, along with plasma and steroids. On July 27th, after a period of relative stability, Jeffrey Smith's condition began to decline. He was sedated and intubated uh, and placed on a ventilator on August 1st. He later developed a secondary infection uh, he was still wrestling with as of August 23rd. Now, they had uh, put him in a medically induced coma. It was obviously, you know, not a great situation, but he apparently woke up from the coma and, uh, like ripped his uh, tube out and that led to an infection, which is why uh, his situation started to decline even further. And, you know, his wife and his partner, his caretaker became incredibly desperate for a solution. So his wife, Julie, began looking for other treatment options, started Googling and ran into, um, you know, a website that said that ivermectin's a great option. So Julie Smith found ivermectin on her own and connected with Dr. Fred Wagshall, a an Ohio physician who her lawsuit identifies as one of the foremost experts on using ivermectin in treating COVID-19. He prescribed the drug and the hospital refused to administer it. Now, the reason why the hospital refused to administer it is because the hospital has an ethical concern in administering a prescription drug for something that it does not actually treat. So that's the reason why uh, Smith's wife, Julie, went to court to essentially force the hospital to administer the drug. And since the judge was able to see that there was a prescription for the drug, he had no choice but to force the hospital, I guess, to administer it. Although there are some legal experts who uh, debate that. They argue that the hospital should have the ability and does have the ability to reject using that type of uh, drug on a patient, um, that they have an ethical duty to do so. Uh, but since I'm not a legal expert, I'm not going to weigh in on that. The real question is, where did this drug come from? Why is it being 
pushed as a treatment for coronavirus when there is a free and approved vaccine available that prevents people from getting incredibly sick, hospitalized and dying from COVID. Well, you know, it's fascinating because there's a lot of studies. Um, There is one main study, a meta-analysis of smaller studies indicating that ivermectin is actually uh, effective. That's what gets cited by the very individuals who are pushing it. However, the uh, co-author for that meta-analysis, his name is Dr. Drew Hill, Andrew Hill, I should say, um, says that you should probably stop citing the meta-analysis because it has been withdrawn. Our meta-analysis of survival for ivermectin, he writes on Twitter, had to be retracted after one of the main studies was suspected of medical fraud. With the revised version, there is no statistically uh, significant survival benefit for ivermectin, so the original version should not be quoted. Also, every major health-related government agency has uh, cautioned people against using ivermectin as a treatment or a prophylactic for coronavirus, including the FDA, the CDC, and the NIH. So why would a pulmonary doctor like Dr. Wagshall, who prescribed Jeffrey Smith that ivermectin prescription, do so when there is no evidence indicating that it's a treatment for COVID? Well, I looked into this doctor's history and what he's been up to since the coronavirus pandemic began. And the Ohio lawsuit makes reference to the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, a nonprofit of which Wagshall is listed as a founding physician. The organization touts ivermectin as a preventative and treatment for COVID-19. Its how-to-get-ivermectin section includes prices and locations of pharmacies that will supply it from Afghanistan to Fort Lauderdale to Pennsylvania to Sao Paulo, Brazil. So what I started to realize was that there is, in fact, a profit motive behind pushing ivermectin. Because one thing that we keep hearing from those who are skeptical about the vaccine is that it's being pushed by big pharma. There's a lot of distrust in our institutions, and I believe that that distrust is not misplaced or displaced uh, or misplaced, I should say. I think that that distrust makes a lot of sense, especially as Americans have experienced decades of pharmaceutical companies essentially gouging them for the drugs that they need to survive or to treat their illnesses. So what I also noticed, though, is that uh, some Profit-driven individuals and organizations have have seen an opportunity to exploit the distrust that Americans have in institutions uh, to essentially push for a drug that not only is ineffective in treating COVID, but will turn them a quick profit if they create a little business model around it that makes a lot of sense. So that's the point of this decode. That is the case that I'm trying to make here. And I'm going to provide some evidence for for why I believe this is what's happening. Because again, where did a horse dewormer come from as a COVID treatment? Seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Now, um, the organization that Dr. Wagshall started in the midst of this pandemic sounds a lot like America's frontline doctors. That's a pretty controversial group of alleged doctors who have been pushing for all sorts of insane things. But really, the emergence of America's frontline doctors was all about initially defending Donald Trump and his response to the pandemic. And then it morphed into something else. 
So as time writes, uh, the emergence of America's frontline doctors was the brainchild of the Council for National Policy, a secretive network of conservative activists. During a May 11th, 2020 call, CNP members complained that Trump was being slammed for his handling of the pandemic, including failing to follow scientific guidelines. The group needed their own medical professionals to promote their message, they said, in the face of data showing two-thirds of Americans were wary of uh, restarting the economy. Remember, in the beginning of the pandemic, the government shut businesses down in order to slow the spread of the coronavirus. But about two weeks after that shutdown, corporations were incredibly antsy, wanted to open businesses back up immediately. Even politicians like Texas's Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was incredibly transparent in whining about how these shutdowns were hurting the markets. I mean, poor, poor Lieutenant Governor worried about his stock portfolios. So initially, America's frontline doctors were looking out for corporate interests and defending Donald Trump as he was trying to convince the American people that it was time to prematurely reopen the government. Now, soon, America's frontline doctors went from pushing premature reopenings uh, as COVID numbers were still spiking early on in the pandemic to pushing for the use of an unproven drug like hydroxychloroquine. You don't need masks. There is a cure. I know they don't want to open schools. No, you don't need people to be locked down. There is prevention and there is a cure. Now, uh, that was also the doctor who was warning everyone about uh, demon semen or something like that. I mean, just complete wackadoo stuff. Okay. But uh, obviously hydroxychloroquine not only failed to save as a cure for COVID, it also had serious side effects for people who decided to use it as an unproven treatment. The World Health Organization has suspended a clinical trial of the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine as a COVID-19 treatment. It cited safety concerns. U.S. President Donald Trump said recently he was taking the drug but has since stopped. The WHO and health authorities around the world have warned of the drug's potentially dangerous side effects. There's also no definitive proof that it is effective against the coronavirus. Virtually all of these drugs that are being considered and being used have the potential to prolong the heart's QT interval and in doing so increases the patient's chance for the heart to spin electrically out of control into a potentially dangerous heart rhythm. And if that doesn't revert back to normal, then that patient will go on to experience drug-induced sudden cardiac arrest and worse. But America's frontline doctors, uh, you know, decided to push for the drug anyway, and they did so while Donald Trump was publicizing the drug and claiming he himself was taking it, although I personally don't believe that he was. Now, uh, there were also trials on hydroxychloroquine in Brazil, but those trials came to a halt after the side effects became incredibly dangerous. Coronavirus patients taking a higher dose of chloroquine developed irregular heart rates that increased their risk of a potentially fatal heart arrhythmia. Roughly half of the study participants were given a low dose of chloroquine, while the rest of, were prescribed a high dose. Within three days, researchers started noticing heart arrhythmias in patients taking the higher dose. By the sixth day of treatment, 11 patients 
patients had died, leading to an immediate end to the high-dose segment of the trial. And other trials indicated that hydroxychloroquine did not either prevent coronavirus, nor did it help to cure coronavirus or treat coronavirus once a patient had it. Now, again, I really want to reiterate that this pandemic has crystallized just how little faith Americans have in its institutions. So when the coronavirus vaccine was made widely available, many people like Joe Rogan just didn't seem to trust it. But what you continue to hear is this prevailing uh, lack of trust in the government. This isn't just a 2021 thing or a coronavirus vaccine thing, Mm -hmm. but this is a mounting, ever-growing distrust in the government at large. Oh, I've heard quite a few people say they're not going to get it. They're afraid to put things in their body. They're afraid they're going to get something from it. They're afraid that just, I don't know. There's, I haven't heard any good reason why people aren't going to get it. All you got to do is go to Facebook and, and you'll get bombarded with the people thinking that the vaccine is going to kill them. I don't care if I look like the wise guy or the dumb guy. I, it's my decision. I just decided I'm not going to do it. I'm a guinea pig if that's the case. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to get the COVID vaccine. I don't feel like I, I don't know. I just feel like I'm good. I don't need to. I take vitamins and whatnot, and I'm, I'm pretty healthy. So. Now, unfortunately, those looking to make a quick buck decided to exploit the lack of trust Americans have in our government. And now America's frontline doctors are finding ways to cash in on ivermectin, and they're doing it pretty easily. So for those who say, no, ivermectin, you can get the generic version. Um, It's it's a cheap cure. It's like sticking it to big pharma. Fact of the matter is, that is not what's really happening here. There are certainly profit motives behind uh, the people pushing for ivermectin. And remember, the coronavirus vaccine is free. Now, there needs to be more protections for workers. So if they do, in fact, get the vaccine and they feel sick and need to call out the next day, uh, they don't face any retaliation from their employers. Uh, But in terms of the you know, cost-benefit analysis and which option saves the most money, it would certainly be people going in to get a free vaccine. Now, how the hell is America's frontline doctors making money off of ivermectin? Well, there's one obvious way. So on its website, people looking for COVID-19 medicine are told to click on a button labeled contact a physician, and then they pay a $90 consultation fee. The link takes customers to another website, speak with an MD, where they're asked to submit payment information and told that one of the frontline doctors will call them within a few days, with sick patients being prioritized. The group describes uh, uh, the group describes speak with an MD as a telemedicine service with hundreds of uh, America's frontline doctors, uh, physicians, basically, uh, physicians within this organization. So What happened in the beginning of the pandemic is the Trump administration loosened 
federal regulations pertaining to telemedicine and allowed for Medicare recipients to do telemedicine, which, by the way, I mean, made a lot of sense, right? It's a pandemic. People might want to see a doctor from the comfort of their own homes. That's totally understandable. But with the loosened laws on telemedicine and the profit motive behind groups like America's Frontline Doctors, you kind of have a a recipe for pretty terrible exploitation. So uh, the thing is, people could just go straight to the Speak with an MD website. um, And instead of getting redirected by America's frontline doctors, they could just go straight to the website and they would pay a fee, but the fee would be less than the $90 that's being charged by America's frontline doctors. The service is marketed on AFLD's, America's frontline doctor's site for $90, while a direct telemedicine consultation through Speak with an MD is listed at $59.99, a $30 difference. So right there, right off the bat, they're making $30 every time someone goes to their website and that person then gets redirected to a website they could have gone to directly themselves. So, I mean, the grift is pretty clear there, but it goes even further. They find other ways to make money off of exploiting people's fears and distrust toward our institutions. So the founder, Simone Gold, was actually arrested for participating in the January 6th insurrection, emails to supporters requesting uh, their urgent and generous donations to withstand such aggressive assaults from the ruthless enemies of free speech, raised more than $400,000 for Gold's legal defense. America's Frontline Doctors built a slick website whose domain was bought by the Tea Party Patriots and an email list of loyal followers whom they urged to make donations. So they actually have people donating to them because they position themselves as like these brave warriors who are looking out for the best interests of Americans, right? So people donate money to them on a, on a monthly basis. They'll donate money if there's a, a cause that's being advertised by this group. In this case, it's the legal defense for Simone Gold. And Gold even sells insanely pricey tickets to meet her in person, like she's some sort of celebrity. In the spring of 2021, for instance, the group announced a national RV tour, which sold VIP tickets for a meet and greet with Gold for $1,000. And the grift doesn't just end with America's frontline doctors. Um, As I mentioned, these loosened telehealth restrictions or regulations has led to a chain of bad actors who engage in this type of behavior. Um, So, for instance, uh, this chain doesn't just end with America's frontline doctors and ask an MD. The actual Speak with an MD service is Encore Telemedicine, a company that connects patients to teledoctors willing to write prescriptions. Since 2015, it appears to have been run out of a home by a golf club in suburban Georgia, according to its business registration. The orders made through Encore Telemedicine go to RAVCU, a digital pharmacy in Florida whose address listed online appears to be a dilapidated white structure by a strip mall. Honestly, this sounds a lot like the the pill mills uh, that were like putting out opioids uh, and certainly did contribute to the opioid epidemic that we're still dealing with, by the way. It's just completely ignored and not talked about. It's incredibly frustrating. But Ravku is supposed to either mail the medicine or call it into a local pharmacy. 
Now get this, the cost of the medicine is applied on top of the consultation fee and varies widely from $70 to $700, according to um, America's Frontline Doctors customers. Um, They've been you know, commenting about this on social media and time went out of its way to to find those comments and, and, you know, read those testimonials to see what's really going on here. Now, again, the coronavirus vaccine is free. You don't have to pay for a consultation fee. You don't have to pay for the vaccine itself. You just go into uh, any place that's uh, offering the vaccine, whether it be a CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, whatever it may be. Um, There are some mobile uh, efforts in rural parts of the country as well. And you just get the vaccine for free. Um, But, you know, there's less of a profit motive for uh, the organizations uh, that are putting out these claims about ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. In fact, those organizations don't make any money at all, which is why they keep pushing um, these baseless claims that ivermectin is an effective treatment for COVID. Now, the consequences of pushing um, this snake oil uh, obviously go further than robbing people of money. It could also rob them of their lives. So for instance, uh, one case involved an adult drinking an injectable ivermectin formulation intended for cattle and becoming hospitalized for nine days with confusion, drowsiness, hallucinations, rapid breathing, and tremors. Another person bought ivermectin of unknown strength from the internet, took it five times a day for five days, and presented to hospital and presented to the hospital disoriented and unable to answer questions or follow commands. The symptoms improved after they discontinued use. So look, I think the solution to this is maybe not so easy. Uh, We've certainly experienced how difficult it's been. But if we really wanted to fight for a solution, that solution would be a single payer healthcare system like Medicare for all. It would be a healthcare system that actually builds trust among Americans rather than essentially uh, so doubt and complete distrust toward our institutions. Again, I mean, the pharmaceutical companies have been the boogeymen in so many tragedies um, in our recent history, right? I mean, when you think about the opioid epidemic and the role that they played, uh, it's so many of these people are, are, of course, still dealing with that. And so if you're distrustful toward uh, pharmaceutical companies, and then you have a government that's kind of neglected your own economic situation, are you likely to trust the very people and the very organizations and institutions that have screwed you over in the past? No, not likely. But if you have a single payer healthcare system that actually provides the care that Americans need at the point of service, I would argue that distrust would be less of an issue. So federal authorities, by the way, um, in the short term, have sent some strongly worded letters. Uh, They are cracking down on coronavirus-related telemedicine schemes. The Federal Trade Commission has sent nearly 400 warning letters to groups and individuals marketing false COVID-19 treatments, including one missive in April telling a Texas medical practice to immediately cease promoting ivermectin or face steep fines. But that response, again, clearly fails to address the root of the problem here. And again, the only thing that I can see that would address the root of the problem 
is making sure that we fight hard and pass a single payer healthcare system similar to the one that Bernie Sanders has been fighting for uh, for quite some time now. Paul. Yeah, that that trust piece is so key. And I think we got to talk about that more when we're talking about single payer. And this is something I've heard and, you know, not to over glorify everything's going to have its issues, but about the NHS in the UK or even Cuba's healthcare system is it's not just that they get, you know, healthcare for free, but it's like there is this long term relationship between patients and their doctors and the hospitals. I think in the NHS and Cuba, a lot, they do house visits. So imagine, you know, if we had a program where our medical, you know, we had a national health service that was doing house visits, canvassing people about the vaccine, I think that would go a long way. Or just the fact that people have this trust, you know, built up over time, you know, would do a lot. And, you know, still with all of that, and like you said, like, I totally understand, you know, if you are critical of the government, of authority, that's great. But what I still struggle to understand is, like, if you're going to be critical of that, why aren't you just as skeptical as, like, any random thing you see on the internet, you know? Um, so that's just, I, I'm still frustrated by that. I just sometimes still don't get it. It's like, you know, just apply that same skepticism to everything you see. And it doesn't, doesn't seem like you're doing that to these same random ass websites that, that you might be coming across. Yeah, I've been, I've been incredibly frustrated about that too, but the way that I, I mean, if you see the way that they frame their argument while they're pushing the snake oil, Mm -hmm. they frame it as, you know, this tyrannical government is right. trying to, you know, go get it, go after you. And, you know, they're going to, the conspiracy theories are there, um, but they play into, I, I just feel like a lot of people are, are primed, right? Yeah. They're ready to like, kind of buy into that kind of framing. And it's not without reason. Like, I'm not like trying to make them out to be like, you know, irrational, illogical people. Right. It's because of the bad experiences they've had in the past. And, my point is, you know, you need to build that trust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned the the house visits. At first, I thought that was a great idea. But then I started realizing that a bunch of conservatives were like threatening to shoot um, anyone who shows up to their house. And it's because th- that distrust, it, it runs so deep. And you've got to like build that trust, right? I think that um, a single payer healthcare system can, you know, start to do that. And you mentioned Cuba, one of the reasons why Cuba's healthcare um, is actually pretty great, even though they have such limited resources, is because they focus heavily on preventative measures. Right. So they do house calls and they take every ailment seriously early on to prevent someone from getting incredibly ill. Right. Exactly. Incredibly sick. Yeah. It's and, the antithesis of what we do. Yeah. And, you know, and one more thing on the trusting, what's so interesting, and I've had this conversation a lot, and I will say very genuinely, genuine question, like, what, you know, for the vaccines that are already in your body, whether that's polio, smallpox, is it that you think those are fine, and there's something uniquely bad about this one? And oftentimes, they'll say yes. And it's, I think this idea that well, the government used to be good, or fine, or wasn't diabolically evil, but somehow something is different about today, where you, you think that they are. And this vaccine is different than the other ones, um, which is just interesting. I, I don't know how I get ultimately to get past that in a short-term way. And unfortunately, we don't get past it in a short-term way that the COVID and uh, whatever variants come up next are going to be also worse in the short term. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, I don't, I don't know if I can take it anymore. <laughs> like kind of losing my mind at this point. Um, but yeah. you know, keep what trying. Can That's all we can do. Right. 
Well, um, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to your segment on charter schools. And and by the way, vaccines have been a big issue um, in regard to school boards, school districts, and whether yeah, or not they sure. have vaccine mandates. Um, but Paul, by all means, take it away. Yeah. So as the new school year begins, I wanted to talk about an important report that came out about charter schools. And there are a lot of myths out there about charter schools that I think this report helps dispel. And so for those that don't know, charter schools are publicly funded but privately owned schools. They emerged in the 1990s and were sold as an innovative alternative to traditional public schools. At this time, there was a lot of talk about how the U.S. educational system was falling behind And the idea was that if we could bring a market-based and competitive approach to education, we could see better results. Freed from regulation, charters could develop a unique curriculum and figure out what works best for the 21st century. And charters had been a relatively new phenomenon. And without a longer-term assortment of data, myths about the inherent superiority of charters had been allowed to persist unchecked. But now, almost 30 years into this experiment, We have more data, and the results are not looking good. The Network for Public Education just published a report called Broken Promises, an analysis of charter school closures from 1999 to 2017. It is a comprehensive study that looked at all charter schools and how long they stayed open. After all, at the most basic level, one judge's success would be if a school can even keep its doors open. They also look at data from specific cities, especially those with high poverty as these are the communities that charter schools claim to be helping the most. So let's start with New Orleans, which is somewhat of a unique sample. After Hurricane Katrina devastated the city, school privatizers saw an opportunity, and the entire city school system became privatized. This has only brought more instability, the report says. It says charter churn is baked into the New Orleans model. More than 35 charter schools in the city shut down between 2006, the year following Hurricane Katrina, and 2017. Surviving schools are frequently taken over by new operators who often have a very different mission and vision for the school. The days of stable schools rooted in New Orleans communities and governed by local elected school boards are gone. Charters appear and then they are gone. The promise of better opportunities for local children has become a promise broken over and over again. And it gets even worse at the national level. The report goes on. Between 1998 and 2015, more than 9,000 charter schools in the U.S. opened and enrolled students. However, more than 3,700 of those schools closed. Of the 606 charters that began serving students in 1999, only 256, or 42%, were still open in 2017. Now, some charter school advocates try to argue that this constant churn is actually a good thing. It's good when bad schools are forced to close. It helps innovation keep happening. But anyone, whether a student, parent, or teacher who has experienced a school closing, knows that it only causes disruption that is terrible for education, let alone social and emotional health. There are endless, heartbreaking stories of sudden charter school closures upending communities. Ashe Preparatory Academy in Seattle closed literally one month after opening, stranding 140 elementary school children. Conditions have become so bad that teachers just quit en masse and stopped coming to work. In Tennessee, Nashville's New Vision Academy charter school suddenly closed mid-year after safety violations, overcrowding, and financial issues. The school actually never had an occupancy permit, and 158 students had to scramble to find a new school. So many of you are probably wondering, how can so many charters be closing like this when it's so bad for children's education? And you're right to wonder this, but in some ways it's missing the point. 
This is what happens when you introduce the business model to education, which should be a public good. What does make sense or what doesn't make sense for education makes a lot of sense for the bottom line of profit. The Broken Promises report, I think, put it best when it said, Success in the prevailing competitive model of education depends on many things, but first and foremost on filling enrollment goals. If founders are struggling to keep the school afloat, it is in their narrow self-interest to keep staff and families in the dark lest they leave the school, thus accelerating and ensuring its downfall. We now have 30 years of data on charter schools, and the numbers don't lie. They have not proven to be the shiny new savior of education that they claim to be. And while we know charters are privately owned, it can be hard to trace exactly how people profit from charter schools. Often they are classified as or mixed up with nonprofits, blurring the lines of their financial operations. Charter schools usually become registered as a nonprofit that gets funding from the state and then gives these funds to a for profit company to manage the school and provide services. Recently, Jackman interviewed Carol Burris from the National or the Network for Public Education, who described how this process works, saying, The for-profit then either directly provides services, from management services to cafeteria services, or they contract out with another for-profit company to provide services. Either way, the goal is to run the charter school in such a way that there's money left over. And the more money they save by doing things like hiring unqualified teachers and refusing to teach students with special needs, the more money is left at the end of the day. And this gets at another way the data of charter schools can be skewed in an unfair way. Public schools have a commitment to get educate all children, including children with special needs. We cannot deny a child because they require extra resources or make our task in a classroom more challenging. Any teacher knows that having a classroom with multiple students with individualized educational needs can change the whole dynamic. But the profit-making does not stop at the services the for-profit company provides. It also extends to real estate. And so Carol Burroughs also explains... Real estate is another way management companies often use to make profits. They get all kinds of tax advantages and low-interest loans to buy a property, and then they lease the property at a big profit to their charter schools. Public money goes into the charter nonprofit and goes out to the for-profit real estate company, which owns the building. So essentially, you have the taxpayer paying the mortgage. And then after the mortgage is paid off, they'll sell it to the charter school at an inflated price. And what's worse... There's virtually no oversight over these financial operations, unlike with public schools. This is partly why when a charter suddenly closes due to fraud or mismanagement, it comes as a shock to the students and the public. In public schools, school districts are elected or at least appointed by an elected official like a mayor. If you don't like what they're doing, you can vote them out. The boards of nonprofits are privately appointed, and many charters have billionaires and their friends sitting on the board overseeing operations they make money off of. This complete lack of oversight leads to countless scandals of fraud and mismanagement. In San Diego, heads of the A3 charter school were found guilty of embezzling $210 million through their school. They also bought children's personal information to falsely enroll them in the schools and pocket the money that was provided for services for these non-existent students. In 2018, the owner of the Goodyear Charter School in Arizona was accused of fraud, which led to a sudden closure of the school. And let's take a look at that incident. 
Standing behind their attorney, former teachers and staff of the now-shuttered charter school are accusing the school's owner of using state funds to live a life of luxury. There were things that were purchased uh, on personal credit cards that, that school funds were used to pay off. The janitorial staff for the school used to clean his personal residence. He's talking about this man, Daniel Hughes, seen here in a 2015 interview. Hughes sent out this email to parents and teachers last Monday stating financial woes had made it impossible to keep the school open despite already receiving more than $2 million from the state. Attorneys for the teachers say those problems were self-inflicted. The cooks from the school used to cater and sponsor parties at his house, his daughter's first birthday party. These these aren't these aren't allegations. These are facts. Now, to be fair, these kinds of examples are exceptionally bad, and there are many charters that operate without scandals. And of course, mismanagement can and does happen in public schools. But the sheer volume of instances involving charter schools, resulting from the clear lack of transparency and oversight, indicates that there is a big problem here. And I want to be clear: the enemy here is not parents. That's send their kids to charter schools, or students or teachers. Many families send their kids to charters because they face a very difficult and practical choice. If their public school is chronically underfunded and doing terribly, it's hard to blame them for wanting to give charters a try. So we need to be careful not to target the wrong people. Also, we need to be able to talk about this with a degree of nuance. I used to substitute teach in charter schools in Philadelphia for a couple of years, which gave me a broad picture of a wide array of charter schools. Now, some of the charters are taught at were worse than average public schools. Many were around the same, and some were better than the average public schools. But for those that were better, it was clear why. They had a lot of resources, a lot of programs, small class sizes, a brand new building. They got public money plus private money, and these resources made a better outcome. So the point is that it's not much of a secret of what makes schools good schools. They need robust funding and support to create quality conditions and programs. Of course, public schools that have been drastically underfunded for generations are not going to be doing well. We need to support our existing public schools properly. Then parents won't be forced to make a choice about whether to send their kids to a charter or not. Families in affluent communities with well-funded public schools don't need to make this choice, and that's what everyone deserves. While we should be understanding of why families choose charters and not target them, Ultimately, we have to follow the money and be clear about what the overall project of charter schools is and how they actively damage public schools. Remember, charters receive public funding, funding that could and should be going to existent public schools. Let's listen to educators in California talk about how charter schools affect their school funding. What's happened with the proliferation of so many charter schools is that sometimes it just becomes a parallel school district and it actually bleeds away money from the neighborhood schools. When a student leaves to attend a charter school, the money we spend to educate them follows. But the student's old public school can't reduce its cost by that same amount. It can't spend less for AC or heat. Its principal can't work part-time. To make up the difference, the school has to cut arts and music classes, lay off its librarian or nurse, clean its bathrooms less, or pay teachers so little they need another job to support their families. A first-of-its-kind study of three California districts found that, on average, charter schools are taking over $1,000 a year from the education of each neighborhood's school student. 
charter schools cost San Diego's district nearly $66 million during the 2016-17 school year alone. In a state where public schools already struggle for resources, allowing more charter schools is making things worse for many students and threatening the very meaning of public education itself. Well, the value of public education is critical because it's the underpinnings of democracy. Because every single student that comes through our door, unlike charter schools, we accept. And we must serve and give them the best possible education. And there's a cost to serving any student that comes across our threshold. We need to invest in our public schools, and not even just for education's sake. Public education has been central for creating and sustaining our democracy. Again, it is a commitment to invest in every child, no matter their class status or race or whatever is going on in their life. It's not a coincidence that public education came to the South as part of the wave of reforms that took place after the Civil War during Reconstruction, that brief period of time when African Americans could and did exercise their democratic rights before Jim Crow. And public schools were seen as crucial to the advancement of black communities. Author Derek W. Black wrote eloquently about the connection between public education and our democracy, saying, Over and over again, when America makes big leaps forward in guaranteeing the right to a public education, it's articulated as a necessary component of fulfilling the promise of democracy. This thread runs throughout American history. Each moment that democracy is expanded, such as with the first and second reconstructions, public education has been massively expanded too. And each moment that democracy is contracted, such as with Jim Crow and the backlash to the civil rights movement, the assault on public education has happened alongside that contraction. But I do think the tide is starting to turn, and more people are beginning to see it. As I said before, charters are no longer the shiny new kid on the block. We have a wide body of experience with them and are seeing the results. More organizations are turning a critical eye to them. A few years ago, the NAACP and the Movement for Black Lives came out and demanded a moratorium on new charter expansion, citing their role in increasing school segregation. Let's listen to NAACP official Hillary Shelton talk about it. What we had during those times and thereafter with part charter schools that were being put in place in many places to undercut many of the policies and protections civil rights has provided. Things like, for instance, making sure that us t- uh, teachers at least have a degree and are certified before they teach. That's a minimum standard. Many charter schools went around that and even hired teachers without degrees at all, creating all kinds of other problems. We had charter schools that were carpetbaggers. That is, they'd come in and before they could figure out that the charter school was not providing the service, the charter school was gone. Now look, you're right. There are some charter schools that have proven effective, but if you go back and talk to the assistant uh, secretaries for civil rights uh, in the Department of Education, the last two, you'll find all the suits that have been filed because charter schools are being utilized in places like Mississippi, Mm -hmm. Alabama, and North Carolina as tools to maintain segregation. So in essence, that's why we're calling for a moratorium. We've got to take a closer look at this. There's a big problem with how these schools are being utilized in so many areas. There is a deep connection between what goes on in charter schools and what goes on in your neighborhood public school. As some viewers know, I've taught in Philly public schools for the last five years. I've talked about the terrible conditions most schools face. 80-year-old buildings with mold, lead, and asbestos, roofs caving in, classrooms of 40 students. And at the same time, we see brand new charter school buildings going up. Of course, those children deserve to have a good building. But we can do that for all public schools and not drain money away from some schools to give to others. 
The charter school movement is part of the overall new liberal project to privatize more and more aspects of our lives that should be social. Education is about developing our capacities as human beings to the fullest. The profit motive does not have a role here. And as the data shows, for-profit education is not even succeeding by its own standards. So I'll end with a line from a public school teacher, Peter Green's blog in the Huffington Post, where he says, Modern charters are not public schools, and they do not make a public school commitment to stay and do the work over the long haul. They are businesses, and they make a business person's commitment to stick around as long as it makes sense to do so. That does not make them evil, but it does make them something other than a public school. And it underlines another truth. Students are not their number one priority. So Anna, curious your thoughts on this. And you know, it's a different, difficult thread we have to walk because, you know, charter schools often use the rhetoric of civil rights and racial justice, and we should call that out. But we should also understand, you know, why they can make that claim and why, um, you know, it resonates because where are our schools underfunded the most? Mostly low-income black and brown communities. So people are seeing that and responding and, and the charter option looks attractive. But I think, you know, ultimately we've got to understand what this project is about. Yeah. And I mean, you know, earlier in the show, we were talking about the right wing and its decades long project in regard to the Supreme court. They also have um, a, a long-term project that's unfortunately been pretty successful in defunding the public education system to the point where it starts to, you know, uh, fail students and their parents, of course, take notice. And then their parents feel like the only real option is either private schools or charter schools. So it's it's just incredible because they they suck the funding out of these schools and then point to the schools and say, look at that. They're failing right. your students. They're failing your children. And um, it, it, I, I'm so grateful that we have people like you who are um, calling out this strategy clearly while also simultaneously showing how uh, these privatized schools or these privately run schools essentially serves as an avenue to redistribute resources um, from the taxpayer to the elite. I mean, right. really, I mean, when you consider the um, wealthy individuals behind this movement, you get a sense of the profit motives behind it as well. Right. And so, yeah. And yeah, I mean, and the, the report is so damning. I mean, the amount that have closed, I mean, they are failing on even their own terms, even on the terms of standardized testing, which I don't think are good ways to judge schools. Like they're not even proving to be good at that. Um, but again, I think the tide is starting to turn. More people are looking at it with a critical eye. And I think the idea that we need to fund public education is at least more more popular now than maybe in like 2013. So that's one one step in the right direction. Yeah. You know, I, I have a question for you, though. I, I'm wondering, you know, teachers in particular have just been so they've been mistreated um, and uh, underestimated, undervalued for such a long time. Is there difficulty in, in hiring new teachers? Um, is there a shortage of teachers? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially, you know, in districts like, I mean, the Philly Public School District or in these cities where it's been underfunded, that's a big problem. Um, and, you know, it's kind of this chicken or egg situation where, like, we're, we're, we need to hire more teachers, but we're never going to be able to do it unless we improve conditions. Um, and not just their pay, although that is definitely important, but, you know, the overall conditions of the school. And I think an even bigger problem is not even just the shortage initially, but the, the, the amount of time teachers stay. And so the average uh, um, in Philly is like three to five years. 
Like if you if you stay five yeah. years, you're like a veteran. And and again, it's because it's not that these teachers are bad people, but like I think many of us are just thrown in this impossible situation. We somehow have to make magic out of you know this chronic disinvestment, um, and and people leave out of frustration. So if we're ever going to retain teachers, you know we need to improve the conditions. But yeah, I mean it's a constant problem of getting enough teachers um, to go in the situation. But, you know, even on that point, I mean, this is actually a big problem with charters as well. Now, charters, one thing about them and another reason why they push them is they're non-union. Um, a few of them, sometimes they'll be able to organize, but they start out as non-union. And that means like they're often like really, really overworked. Um, they're worked like crazy. They, they basically try to get a young, idealistic, like 22-year-old burn through them in two or three years so um, turnover is actually probably even worse in charter schools than in some public school districts. Wow. Well, this is such an important topic. Like I, I, I went to public schools all throughout my, um, you know, education. Yeah. Uh, I was part of the LAUSD system. And, you know, when I was going to school, it was already starting to deteriorate a bit right. and it was because of um you know prop 13 the past in the state uh mm-hmm. in you know the late 1970s right. and that really underfunded the LAUSD system it took this uh incredibly successful school system that was like you know i think among the top in the country right. to now being among the worst in the country and it's just really heartbreaking to see it because i think about you know english is my second language um mm-hmm. armenian was my first language and I just remember having such a wonderful experience in the public school system. And I remember, you know, feeling welcomed and not feeling inadequate because I was, uh, uh, I, I couldn't speak English right. when I went into it. And I wonder what it's like now for immigrant students or even students that are born in this country to immigrant parents and, and might need like, you know, a little extra help with English as a second language. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it, all these things are connected. I mean, to me, one of the biggest issues is class size. And it's like, I mean, 35, 40 students in a class is too much, period. But again, imagine now you have some kids with special needs, an English language learner who needs all, you know, a lot of extra attention and resources. If you're in a class of 35, 40 kids, like they're not going to get that level of attention that they need. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, we're dealing, I'm sure, probably similar where you are all across the country, this wave of, of violent crime, of gun violence. And, you know, it, it, it's just not a surprise where another thing is that, you know, after school programs, like you, you go to an affluent public school community, you know, whether it's any sport they could choose from, any music endeavor, whatever it is, they have these things. But, you know, it's very rare in Philly public schools to have a music program. You know, there's not much yeah. to do after school. Um, I guarantee you would see some of the, this violence decrease if there was more of like robust programming for, for kids to be involved with. So, you know, all these issues are kind of connected to, to public education. Absolutely. You're so right about that. Well, uh, luckily we have uh, David Sirota here to help us talk about these issues, uh, including the current debate on the budget re- reconciliation bill in the Senate. Uh, so, oh, wait, we're still waiting on Sirota. My bad. Yeah, he's coming. Oh, in sorry time. about that. Okay. No okay. Great. He'll be here in a sec, everyone. Producer. Okay. Cool. So we'll wait for him. How about? Um, I don't know if anyone sent in any super chats in the meantime, Kale. Maybe we can answer a question or two while we wait. Um, I'm not seeing super chats, uh, but um, 
Anyways, I guess one of the some something maybe worth mentioning that doesn't really fit into the rest of the show, but obviously is like a part of the news that uh, should have, you know, it's it's something worth talking about. And we were discussing this before the show started. Is just the, um, you know, the the chaos that the the hurricane uh, uh, storm has brought to the East Coast in the last two days. And um, I I can say I was fairly fortunate in my location in New York, but uh, I know a lot of friends who had, um, you know, water leaking in, people's basements being completely flooded. Um, there's videos you can see online where there's, you know, it, it's like you're, people are, there's cars in the middle of a river, effectively, but it's the the street that, you know, that they live on. And uh, so it's, it's something where, you know, these, these kinds of storms are going to continue happening. Like it's, you know, it's... Uh, we think of it as, as something novel, but it's going to increasingly become more and more normal. Um, it has increasingly become more and more normal on the East Coast, at least. Um, yeah, and I was and, saying before the show started, but I mean, Philadelphia, one of our main expressways was underwater. Like, yeah. we've never, never seen anything like this. And, you know, one thing I'm interested to see, a, a friend of mine I saw on Twitter, who's also in Philly, said, like, she overheard uh, a few a few older people in her group saying, like, you know, th- this has made them like actually believe in climate change finally. And like, maybe if there's any, any good thing about some of this is like, it's becoming so real, you just can't ignore it. Um, mm-hmm. And I do wonder, you know, how the needle is going to move in terms of like, you know, the average population or even many people that, you know, they've believed in climate change, but like they haven't necessarily felt the urgency. They don't think it's the number one issue necessarily. You know, I- I'm just curious how that's going to play out as a public. Just you can't ignore it anymore. Um, how that's going to intersect with what I hopefully Sirota will talk about is like, you know, Democrats not doing enough on climate, not going big and bold enough. Um, but I do hope that, you know, we're just reaching this point where it's becoming very hard for both for the public and for politicians to ignore it or not doing not doing something bold enough that's up to the task. Yeah, you know, um, to that point, I mean, in. In California, you know, we're not dealing with flooding, quite the opposite. We're dealing with both a pretty severe drought and also on top of that, uh, the wildfires that are becoming more and more ferocious every year. Uh, They're beginning earlier in the season, lasting far longer. And it's, you know, I did a whole decode on how the fires are sparked by um, these awful private utility companies that don't invest in upgrading their equipment. But once those fires start, because of the conditions on the ground, it's incredibly difficult to put them out or to even control them. And, you know, yesterday, as I was like, of course, seeing all these images and videos of the flooding in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and on top of that, the whole Supreme Court thing regarding um, Texas's anti-abortion law, it's just like, it's really difficult to like avoid uh, feeling pretty extreme despair. But I think what what gives me a little bit of hope is what you just mentioned, Paul, people who I would have never imagined being concerned about climate change because they were pretty dismissive of it earlier are now seeing the ramifications firsthand. And I I, I hope that there's a sense of urgency to do something. Um, You know, I think our lawmakers are pretty disconnected from the realities of uh, their own constituents and what they're going through, which is why someone like Joe Manchin could 
literally say that he doesn't he wants to put a pause on the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill even as people are like dying in these right you know in these floods um but the fact of the matter is like people need to get active right uh we can't sit back and wait for politicians to look out for our best interests i mean we've seen how poorly that's played out for us so far well also i'm just i'm thinking about the interview that we had last week with matt huber um, that people should check out. They haven't checked out. And, and one of the things that he's talking about is how, you know, so much of the environmental movement for several decades has been not, uh, not explicitly uh, labeled as such, but in, in fact, in actuality and what they're actually doing, the vast majority of it is just lifestyle politics, where it's, you want to deal with this massive existential threat to the planet. Well, you should consume differently. You should buy better products. You should, um, you know, pay a couple, you know, a little bit more money in order to get uh, the, the, you know, the more recyclable version of whatever product that you're buying, um, recycling. I mean, it's, and obviously, you know, there's things like paper straws or whatever. And I think some of the response to, um, to Huber when like he or others makes these points of like, that kind of politics is not uh, effective on a number of counts. Um, one of the responses is, well, but people are at least doing something. Isn't it good that, uh, you know, they're contributing in some way that and what we should say and, and what I'm saying now is we're on a live show is like, that's not enough. Like, and in fact, it's it's antithetical that you thinking that you're doing something because you're using a reusable bottle or a paper straw or something and then patting yourself on the back like, oh, well, I, you know, it's a horrific, terrible situation that I see around me, but at least I did my part. Like it deflates any possibilities for you to then end up in uh, a greater actual real effective political struggle. And I should actually preface because it's potentially effective that like it's our, our political efforts, what we're advocating for is I think the only real way that we're ever going to have a chance of combating climate change in any real way. And even still, there's no guarantee that we win. Like, which means that it's not like there is not going to be a happy ending. Uh, and like, we have to actually affect and change the world around us in history, ultimately. And if we fail to do that now, if we fail to act on this now, it really will mean something catastrophic in the future. And I think there's there's sometimes a danger in going overly catastrophic with these things to say, right. like, we have 10 years and if we if we don't solve it in 10 years, we're screwed. And then when 10 years comes around and we haven't solved it, uh, it's going to become very it's a different in a different way. It's deflationary. Right. But nevertheless, like, as I'm sure a lot of people are experiencing on the East Coast, people on the West Coast experience the summer with the, the wildfires people across the world are experiencing in, in a myriad of different other uh, weather related ways. Uh, it's here. And yeah. mm-hmm. like. And it's, it's not, you're not going to solve it on your own in any way. It's, it, you necessarily have to find a way to contribute to a, a larger collective effort. And you have to fundamentally challenge those people that today structurally have financial and economic incentives to maintain the process that we're in going forward. Because they're not, the, the CEOs are not going to wake up tomorrow and go, yeah, I guess it is pretty bad. I guess I guess we're going to completely dismantle the entire economic model that led up to this point and and you know put me in the position I'm in. It's, it's not going to happen. Even if I like, add them on Twitter. 
<laughs> yeah, even that. Even. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I think we have this balance of like having to adjust to the new reality in a sense. And what I mean by that is like we're increasingly at the stage where like it's not that we're going to get rid of climate change totally, but we're, we're going to be in a world where we are dealing with the effects of it. And the, the question is how we deal with it and how severe those effects are. And, you know, and this is why I don't mean to open up this can of worms right now. We don't have to go into it. But like on the Jackman show, we've been having guests on talking about nuclear power, which I know is very controversial, but and it doesn't dis, dis, uh, dismiss any concerns about nuclear energy like storage. But it's like, well, if we're now in this situation where the climate change is here and we're, we're choosing between some climate change and runaway climate change, we might have to seriously consider some options of like, you know, what can not release the most carbon at, you know, as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, and where I do see, and I hate to say it this way as if any of this is like good, but like some opportunities also, and I've talked about this a lot as well, is with with certain unions, especially building trades unions and fossil fuel unions, uh, which is ultimately what we w- need to win over. And what I'm increasingly hearing now from those unions is not that there is a problem. I'm hearing them saying that, you know, look, we know a transition needs to happen and we know it's going to happen. We just want it done in a way that protects workers. And mm-hmm. we're even seeing this on the local level in Philadelphia. You know, five years ago, we weren't getting the same traction with construction unions that we are now about, you know, what would we do projects of renovating school buildings in, in an energy efficient way with union labor? And they're a lot more open to it because I think they're seeing like, we don't th- want this thing to come in a way that's non-union. We should get on board now for this transition. And I think there's some space for activists and like, you know, especially leftist legislators, whether at the state, federal level, to be reaching out to these unions and saying like, look, let's be proactive and let's do this now before the green transition comes and it's just going to wipe labor out. So I think there there are some opportunities I see. Yeah. um, You know, that was kind of like the missing link that we were discussing in the interview. I think it was last week, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We interviewed Mm -hmm. Huber. Yeah. And um, I think he made a really great point about that. Like the fact that a lot of the climate activism kind of left out uh, coordinating and working with labor, um, you know, a labor led movement essentially to do something about uh, climate change. And I mean, it, I think that that would be a far more powerful uh, movement than just, you know, what's been happening lately. Um, so yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, if you just, if you treat, uh, environmental politics, just like actual politics, like anything else, the left answer has been and remains labor. Like you're not going to get change unless you have like millions of working people organized in a way that they can actually leverage their collective power to, to challenge those who do in fact have power in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not going to belabor the point because actually our guest is here. So I'm going to drop yes. out and we can reintroduce. All right. Joining us now is David Sirota, the man behind the Daily Poster, uh, which you all should be subscribed to over at Substack. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Sorry for being late. No No worries. No worries. Um, So we want to get into the infrastructure bill, the budget reconciliation bill and all of that. Uh, But before we do, you know, you just published a piece along with, um, I believe, Alex Perez uh, regarding what Democrats can do in response or I I apologize, Andrew Perez, in response to uh, the anti-abortion bill or I should say law in the state of Texas. Uh, Please check it out over at Jacobin. Um, You saw it on your screens right now. 
And so I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about it because um, while I agree with the piece, I am curious. Like one of the issues with the way that this law was written was that the state gets to say, well, we're not enforcing this anti-abortion measure. We have um, allowed for private citizens to do this. And so they're, they're the ones, the private citizens are the ones enforcing this law. But if they were to bring forth a lawsuit, wouldn't that lawsuit need to be adjudicated within the court system? And isn't the court system part of the state? Well, sure. And and I think that, you know, the law that we talked about or the bill, I should say, that we talked about that's been bottled up in committee in Congress. I mean, that bill says that essentially that the state states can't make law that essentially impede access to uh, abortion and women's reproductive health. So the way I read it, and I'm not a lawyer, but the way I read it is that if, if a federal law codifying um, Roe v. Wade, that law, that bill was was signed into law, uh, it would effectively invalidate and outlaw, uh, preempt the Texas law, because the Texas law clearly does uh, create an impediment to, um, to abortion services. Uh, and I think the question then becomes, why have the Republicans been uh, able to pass state laws restricting abortion and at the federal level, the Democrats have promised a federal law that codifies the Roe precedent. Why has that bill been sitting in committee? Now, uh, it's a self-answerable question. Uh, a big reason is because the presumption is that it can't pass muster, can't pass the can't pass the Senate through uh, a filibuster. So everything in our politics continues to go back to the question of the filibuster, which is really sad and pathetic. And, and frankly, I think it, it saps uh, the energy uh, out of American politics, among other. Not only does it stop things from actually happening, but it basically says to the country that no matter what you want, no matter how much organizing you do, uh, there's just a roadblock to basically everything. And, you know, what what that does to our politics I think, and what that message sends to to people out there is, is that the government really uh, is structurally unable to respond to what people may want, structurally unable to deliver on what politicians promise they're going to deliver. Yeah, um, just quick follow up on that, uh, because you know, just yesterday in response to uh, what the Supreme Court did and failing to block uh, the law as it makes its way through the federal courts. You know, Biden issued a strongly worded statement. You know, he's like, this is outrageous. Uh, I am going to deploy the Department of Health and Human Services to see what the federal government can do about this. Um, but other than that, it was a vague statement. Um, so what were your thoughts on that? Because it seems like he's kind of playing stupid and pretending as if like, oh, what can we do? I'm going to get the Department of Health and Human Services to study it, just like I was going to get a commission to study gun violence to figure out what to do about, you know, weapons in the country. It's just like, what, what was your reaction to it? I, I think Joe Biden understands the formula in democratic politics that has worked uh, uh, in some ways. I put worked in quotes, uh, worked for politicians, which is to say that say the right thing, sound like you're, you're on the side of, uh, of your promises, of what uh, uh, Democratic voters want, uh, and then don't 
necessarily do what actually needs to be done to deliver on the spirit of the words that you're that you're saying so i think he's mastered that in in a lot of ways i think he i mean it's not hard to master it's not rocket science it's pretty cynical but basically say the right things uh lots of democratic voters just want politicians who sound like they're on their side and nobody will really pay attention to the to the details now i think maybe that it may, may end up being different here uh, I think that this is uh, such a high profile issue that maybe people will follow the, the details. But look, we saw that we've seen this 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 pattern in the past. I mean, this was a guy who campaigned on a fifteen dollar minimum wage who bailed out on it the first possible chance uh, there was in the in the uh, stimulus bill. Uh, he uh, was lauded for uh, saying he was going to uh, support. Uh, vaccine patent waivers. uh, And that was months ago. And nothing's really happened on that. And the administration really hasn't followed through in a a lot of ways on that. Uh, So he got all the praise. And then everyone 15 minutes later forgot. Uh, And maybe I shouldn't say everybody, but lots of people. Uh, And it's what I call the, the, you know, tongue in cheek, I call the goldfish syndrome. I mean, Mm -hmm. the American political system seems unable uh, to remember beyond 15 minutes. We forget our whole world every 15 minutes, uh, like a goldfish. By the way, a goldfish apparently doesn't actually forget its world every 15 minutes, but so the apocryphal story goes. And I think that Joe Biden cynically uh, has internalized this. He just can go out, say some good things, uh, bank on the idea that 15 minutes later, everybody will forget and we'll move on to the next crisis, the next story, and that's it. And I think it's kind of pathetic. Uh, But, you know, this is what Democratic voters continue to vote for. And I've reached a point in my life where I'm starting to wonder if this is we're getting the world that Democratic voters actually want or are at, at, at minimum willing to tolerate uh, a world in which politicians flatter them with nice speeches and then don't actually use the levers of power to deliver on the promises that they're making. Uh, and that if voters continue to reward that, that's essentially what voters want, and that's what voters are being given right now. So, what are we talking about again? That was 15 minutes. So, um, sorry, bad <laughs> joke. Um, so let's let's <laughs> let, let's go to the. Um, I liked it. Thank you. Thank you. There's always one. Um, let's go to the uh, infrastructure bill. So you know, you say in your recent Jackman piece that you know corporate America's goal is to decouple the infrastructure bill from the climate and budget reconciliation bill. So. First, can you explain the difference between the two bills and then why why does the corporate world want to keep them separate? Sure. So the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is um, uh, lots of spending on roads, airports, bridges, um, sort of the um, the standard forms of infrastructure that have been called infrastructure. Uh, and it has very, very little uh, climate stuff in it. Uh, it does not have what is now being called human infrastructure, basically anti-poverty programs. So it's hard infrastructure that Democrats and Republicans uh, and corporate America have supported uh, kind of non-controversially uh, forever. Um, uh, you know, there's <clears throat> a lot of money to be made uh, by corporations uh, when it comes to contracting. Uh, companies uh, need physical infrastructure uh, and the like. I mean, I, to, to, to my mind, it's kind of insane that we're going to be spending even more money, for instance, on airports uh, in the middle of a climate crisis when scientists are basically saying we need to be uh, not uh, putting uh, tons of money into the existing fossil fuel infrastructure. But by and large, the, it's it's relatively not controversial uh, 
uh, traditional infrastructure spending. That's the infrastructure bill. Then there's the separate three and a half trillion dollar anti-poverty and climate bill and human infrastructure bill, which has uh, all sorts of programs to help people, for instance, through uh, the economic crisis, all sorts of climate programs. Uh, So the reason why these two bills uh, have been linked together up until now is because of a basic theory of, of what of how Congress is working right now, which is to say that the Democratic senators uh, who want the infrastructure bill, uh, the conservative Democratic senators, uh, a handful of them are people who have expressed uh, 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 criticism of the separate climate and anti-poverty bill. And so the climate and anti-poverty bills is supposed to be passed under reconciliation, which requires only 51 votes. It does not need uh, to the 60 votes to get through the filibuster. So the idea is uh, that that the if you couple these two bills together, uh, that the conservative Democrats uh, who want the infrastructure bill uh, will have to provide their votes uh, for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, the climate and anti-poverty bill, they will have to provide votes for both. That if you decouple them, uh, they can vote for the infrastructure bill they and their corporate donors want, and then they can vote against the climate and anti-poverty bill that they don't want and that their corporate donors are now lobbying against. So corporate America, for various reasons, doesn't want that $3.5 trillion anti-poverty and climate bill. Uh, The fossil fuel industry doesn't want it because it's got a lot of uh, 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 clean energy programs in it. Uh, The healthcare section of the bill uh, is likely to include uh, uh, initiatives to lower the price of prescription drugs. So the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like it. And I can go through the list here, but the basic point is, is that the Washington Post reported this week that corporate America, corporate forces have launched a big lobbying campaign against the reconciliation bill. Uh, and so essentially what you're seeing uh, is an effort to delink those bills. And by the way, uh, one last thing is that, you know, Joe Manchin, who's been who's one of the conservative Democrats who wants the infrastructure bill, who has been periodically um, criticizing the three and a half trillion dollar climate and anti-poverty bill. Uh, he came out with a Wall Street Journal op ed. Uh, this mm-hmm. week on the same in the same 24 hour news cycle that we learned that corporate lobbyists are launching a campaign uh, against the infrastructure bill. And his Wall Street Journal op ed, of course, said uh, said we should put a pause uh, on that bill. So we see I mean, he is clearly a corporate puppet. He's being pretty explicit about it. Uh, and so we see what's really going on here. And the only way to prevent just the infrastructure bill from passing without that much, much more needed climate bill for uh, passing, uh, the only way to keep to, 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 to basically make sure uh, the climate and anti-poverty bill passes is probably to keep them linked. And so you have the, the question then becomes, will the progressive members of the House in that narrowly divided House, will they stick together and say, we will not provide votes for the infrastructure bill Uh, We will provide enough votes against it to stop it until and unless the infrastructure bill remains linked with the climate and anti-poverty bill. So, um, you know, that's the big question, whether they're uh, willing to do that or not. And uh, rhetorically, at least, uh, they have, uh, you know, issued those threats indicating that they will block the infrastructure bill uh, unless uh, there is a clear path forward for the passage of the reconciliation bill, that it's, uh, you know, 
both things need to happen simultaneously. Okay. Both bills need to be on Biden's desk together. And so, um, you know, I guess I have two questions on that. A, what is the real, like, what do you predict will happen? Because there will be quite a bit of pressure on progressive lawmakers to just fold. Uh, you know, I, I, I can already see the way the media is going to frame it. Oh my God, this incredibly important infrastructure bill is being blocked by these awful progressives. Um, they just, they won't take yes for an answer and I, I can see it. Right. But then on the other hand, it, it appears that Nancy Pelosi has been on the progressive side. And, you know, Ryan Grimm in one of his recent segments on um, The Rising argued that, you know, Pelosi is all ego. So she genuinely does seem to want to pass the reconciliation bill to kind of seal her legacy. What what do you think about that? Well, if you ask me to predict what's going to happen, I I don't like, I mean, you never really know, but I can tell you what I think is a, a likely scenario. I think a likely scenario is that the progressive lawmakers will say that they're going to hold out uh, and that the so you're, you're basically looking for where are the gray areas in this? Well, will they hold out for a reconciliation bill? Uh, and I want everyone to keep in mind that term, a reconciliation bill. Will they hold out for a reconciliation bill to be attached to that infrastructure bill? And I think the answer on that question will likely be yes. But then where's the other gray area? The other gray area is, well, what are we classifying as an acceptable reconciliation bill? The Progressive Caucus has only put out a statement, uh, uh, a letter to the House leadership saying, we uh, will not vote for these bills unless they are together. So that's good. But they have said we will not vote for them unless they are, uh, the infrastructure bill is attached to a robust uh, reconciliation bill. So the point I'm trying to make here is, is that they're not saying what exactly robust means. They're using terms that are deliberately vague. They are not saying uh, we uh, will not vote for the infrastructure bill unless it includes the existing three and a half trillion dollar proposal that Bernie Sanders is championing, uh, a framework of which passed the House and Senate. Now, not the details, but a framework. They are not saying um, our votes will be contingent on these specific demands. So all of that is to, to explain what I think is a likely scenario where the progressives hold out uh, for the bills to be linked. But the bill that ends up being linked to the infrastructure bill is significantly watered down. Uh, that Joe Man, that there will be concessions made to Joe Manchin to hack apart that bill. And then the question becomes, well, are they, li- they're living up to the spirit or excuse me, the word, the, the, the literal words of a, their so-called no climate, no deal commitment. We will not vote for an infrastructure bill unless it includes a reconciliation bill. Pelosi will be able to say, see, I'm honoring your demand. That's what you, you, you said you wanted them linked. But the devil is always in the details. What is it actually linked to? Is it linked to something that's not real? Is it linked to something that's not adequate to the crisis? And that's my concern, is that these things tend to get watered down so that a three and a half trillion dollar bill, which I would argue is is minimally adequate to dealing with the infrastructure, excuse me, the climate crisis that we're facing. That's the least it should be. 
uh, that that gets watered down to something that's completely unacceptable and inappropriate. Uh, and then the progressives are under pressure. Well, you're not going to get three and a half trillion. You're going to get this gutted bill, but it's at least something. So so vote for it. And then the question becomes, well, will they actually hold out? And, and I don't I don't really know the answer to that. And I, but I think it's suspicious that they're using these terms robust, et cetera, et cetera, that don't actually make specific demands, uh, that don't actually make uh, specifics that we can hold them to, that voters can hold them to. And I think Nancy Pelosi is smart. I think she's going to zero right in on that gray area uh, to try to get to a deal. And, and I think that's really the big, the big problem here is why haven't these progressives been specific about their demands? And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but Joe Manchin has already said that, you know, we need to hit the pause button on this bill. Do you think, I mean, this keeps happening. It, is there any strategy you see evolving to deal with the Joe Manchins and the Kristen Cinemas of the world? Do you think the approach could be any different this time, even by people like Biden and Pelosi, let alone the progressives? Well, they've never been tested, right? I mean, we know that they and their donors really want that infrastructure bill. We know that. So they have never been put on the spot to say, listen, you're either getting the infrastructure bill you want along with the three and a half trillion dollar uh, uh, reconciliation bill, or you're not getting any of it. And if you if you are the ones who tank this, you're basically denying yourself the infrastructure bill that you and your donors want. And they've never been tested. And part of the problem in democratic politics, in my view, is that it's conflict averse at the highest levels that Mm -hmm. nobody wants to put that nobody at the highest levels wants to put them on the spot. And my view is, is that if the progressives made specific demands, we want X, Y, and Z in this bill, we can't vote for this package unless it has X, Y, and Z. Uh, It's gotta be three and a half trillion dollars, whatever the demands are that if those are the, the demands and they are clear, it will mobilize the white house with its enormous uh, legislative apparatus uh, and its bully pulpit, it will mobilize the House and Senate leadership to actually put the pressure on Manchin Cinema and others to fall in line. And it's not like they're getting nothing. They're getting the bill that they want. Now, I will tell you, there's a, one good piece of news in all of this is that, and it was kind of missed uh, by a lot of by a lot of folks, but I thought it was really important. Chuck Schumer after the framework passed, remember the House and Senate passed a budget framework for that climate and anti-poverty bill. It's basically, here's the, t- the top line of how much we're going to um, uh, spend. And now you, the committees, go and you figure out the details. So that that already passed. And after it passed, Schumer sent a letter to all Democratic senators saying the intergovernmental panel report about climate change uh, shows why we must act. And that the infrastructure bill and the climate anti-poverty bill actually will fulfill the things that we need to do that the scientists are telling us that we need to do. So we, effectively, you had the Senate majority leader touting the full three and a half trillion dollar uh, package that Bernie Sanders was pushing, saying this. Is, that, and he had a lot of language in there about like, this is our one moment to do this. It's our, our moment in history. So I was encouraged by that in the sense that, hey, at least the Senate majority leader is willing to go on record saying, what is already being proposed, the Sanders proposal, is a way for us, is the way 
for us to fulfill what scientists are saying we need to do. So more, he's gone a step further than Pelosi. He's gone, frankly, a step, arguably a step further than even the House progressives, at least rhetorically, by not just using words like robust. He's actually pointing to a specific proposal saying this is what we must do. Now, I think Chuck Schumer can, you know, speak out of both sides of his mouth. He can go, you know, maybe he's going to turn around and screw over that bill in some other way. But my point is, at least he took a took a position on on some specifics. I always tell people when politicians are are evasive and not willing to be specific about what they're demanding, your your suspicions should rise of what are they actually doing? What are they trying to do? And and let's be clear, I'm not saying that that progressive lawmakers and using these terms and not taking specifics, uh, making specific demands. I'm not saying they're they're being dishonest. I think they're trying to keep their options open for, for a final negotiation. But ultimately, in a negotiation, you have to be clear about what you want, right? I mean, you kind of get the sense that what they're trying to do is preserve their ability to say in a press release that they won even if they didn't win or even if they ended up producing a bill that's completely in, in, inadequate and inappropriate to the to the crises we face. So to turn to a happier figure than Manchin, uh, Bernie Sanders, he's been um, touring swing states trying to make the case for this reconciliation bill. And this is kind of like hearkening back to what he talked about he would do if he was president. You know, if he got elected, he would you know, put the pressure on, he would go to the people, even in so-called red states, and make the case. So I kind of have two questions. I mean, one of them is, do you think this will have an impact on the ultimate vote or what this bill looks like? And then second, you know, more broadly, I mean, is this a kind of style of politics? We don't really see this much from um, Democratic Party politicians. Is this a kind of style of politics that you think needs to be kind of revived on a broader scale by more people? Well, look, I think it's good that, that at least somebody's going out there and making the case to the public, getting out of the Beltway echo chamber, and, and I think I think that's great. Um, I I I do think that I, I'm not sure how much it will move the needle if you're not actually bringing pressure on the specific legislators who need to be pressured. Uh, we know who those legislators are, right? Joe Manchin, uh, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, there are a couple others. We know who they are. Uh, they need to be mobilized and moved. And you have not seen that from the president of the United States, at least publicly. Uh, You have not seen that from uh, Democratic lawmakers. You've seen some of it from uh, uh, AOC. Uh, She's at least been, uh, at least in the last couple of days, been pretty explicit uh, in trying to spotlight pressure on Joe Manchin. I think that's good. But ultimately, I think just going to some random places, uh, even in Republican areas. I mean, I saw that Bernie Sanders went to went to Indiana, and I'm not criticizing him for going to Indiana, but I don't think those uh, right-wing Republican uh, senators from that uh, uh, red state are going to be moved. I'm not saying that the the effort is, is not worth it. Uh, I'm not saying it's pointless to go there. I'm just saying I don't think that's going to move the needle. I think the only way to move the needle on the outcome is to do things that potentially move those Senate votes that you need to get to 51. That is really the whole ball game. Um, so I just wanted to briefly ask about something that happened a few weeks ago in regard to the conservative Democratic members of the House who uh, claimed that they were going to withhold their vote on the budget reconciliation bill unless 
they got some concession from Nancy Pelosi in regard to the specific date that the House would vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Can you talk about what that debate was all about and what it means for the future of the budget reconciliation bill? Sure. Well, we, I mean, those nine uh, or 10 House Democrats, uh, they were the tip of the spear for the corporate lobby to try to delink the bills. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, they want the infrastructure bill passed free and clear uh, without it being attached to the reconciliation bill. Uh, because it, one, they they want the things in the infrastructure bill, but also two, uh, they want to help their donors delink those bills. So they got a concession that the infrastructure bill will be voted on by, I think it was September 27th. And I think their theory is, is that the House and Senate committees on the larger bill, the climate and anti-poverty bill, the committees that now need to write the details uh, will not be able to write those details fast enough to keep them linked. Uh, and so if Pelosi holds to her commitment, uh, she will be forced to bring up the infrastructure bill alone. Uh, it will pass the House. Uh, it's already passed the Senate. It will then go to Biden's desk. It will be signed, which will then alleviate all the pressure, all the incentive, all the leverage uh, on Manchin, Cinema, and the like, uh, and those nine House Democrats, by the way, to then vote for the climate and the anti-poverty bill. That's their end game. Uh, and so uh, obviously how fast the reconciliation bill is written is a, is a factor. Uh, and, you know, whether they can pass if let's say September 27th comes up uh, and they bring up a standalone infrastructure bill, whether there are enough progressive members of the House uh, to vote against the infrastructure bill at that moment uh, to not allow the infrastructure bill to pass. Now, there's one other X factor here. Uh, the other X factor is, uh, you notice I said enough progressive House members uh, to do that. Uh, the other X factor is whether any Republicans in the House will vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, that bill got, I think it was 20 Republicans to vote for it uh, in the Senate. If there are enough Republican votes in the House for a standalone infrastructure bill, that's the number, the number of Republicans that Pelosi could get for a standalone infrastructure bill is the number of, of House progressives that would need to vote against it. In other words, are there enough Republican votes out there in the House uh, to overcome any no votes from progressives uh, who want to keep the two bills linked? That's a big X factor. Now, Donald Trump has more, uh, in, seems to have more influence among House members, than uh, House Republicans than Senate Republicans. Uh, and he's campaigning against the infrastructure bill. So in a, in a weird way, I mean, he's a chaos agent. I don't, I mean, he's not doing it for good reasons. But in a bizarre way, he's actually, what he's doing actually um, potentially helps keep the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill linked. But the question will be, are there enough peel-off Republicans to overcome uh, any progressive opposition votes? That That's a big question. And so this last question is kind of looking ahead to the midterms. I mean, how much do you think Biden and the Democratic Party's success in these midterms depends on the outcome of this deal, both, you know, getting it passed and what's actually in it? Do you think this is like make or break for them? Well, I, you know, I, I think that, the, that uh, letting the voting reforms, which is separate, 
uh, and redistricting reforms uh, uh, missed the census deadline. There's a whole issue with that, where basically they had to, on the redistricting, they had to pass, uh, arguably they had to pass uh, the reform of the redistricting process before the census data came out. Now that the census data is out, that happened in uh, mid-August. The census data is now out to states, which means Republican states can use that census data to uh, potentially gerrymander their states uh, uh, in ways that make it impossible for Democrats to to, uh, keep control of the House. So that situation is already uh, bad uh, because they didn't pass yet the voting reforms or the redistricting reforms. So I think their best chance of of averting a, a an electoral disaster uh, in 2022. And look, the first midterms of a president's first term tend to be bad for the president's party. So they're already facing a strong headwind. Uh, I think the best chance they have of averting that kind of disaster that we saw, by the way, in 2010, everyone remembers that, is to deliver as much as possible uh, for as many people as possible uh, to show that the Democrats actually can deliver material gains for regular people. Uh, I think they did deliver some material gains for regular people right at the beginning of the Biden presidency with this, with the, uh, the, the COVID emergency uh, bill. I think that was a good thing. It wasn't enough. Uh, we're right, and we're right now uh, headed into watching uh, unemployment benefits, uh, enhanced unemployment benefits get cut off uh, in the middle of a weak jobs report and as the pandemic gets worse. So I think all of that is to say, I think the most robust anti-poverty climate bill that can pass is the best chance for Democrats to be able to go to voters and say, look at what we've done. Look at how we have materially improved your lives. Is that definitely going to save them from an electoral disaster? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's Nothing's definite. Is that the best chance that they probably have? Yeah, I think that's the best chance that they have. Yeah, I think you're right about that, David. And uh, obviously time is of the essence. And I'm already seeing, I mean, like the fact that Democrats in the House have like decided to go on vacation, um, you know, in the midst of all the issues that the country's facing right now, they're going to come back. And then there's like a year of campaigning that follows that. Um, So again, time is of the essence. We'll see what happens. But Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today um, to help, you know, parse out what's really going on um, in Congress. And uh, everyone, please go check out David's work uh, in Jacobin. And also, uh, please subscribe to his Substack. Uh, His latest piece is titled Progressive Members of Congress Need to Hold. Uh, Can we go back to that? Sorry about that. Uh, Progressive Members of Congress Need to Hold the Line on the Infrastructure Bill. And the other piece is Congressional Dems are Failing to Secure Abortion Rights. Thank you again, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. All right. Uh, So I believe we don't have any super chats. um, So we're going to go ahead and call it a show. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for watching. Paul, thank you for filling in, Fernando. It was like an absolute pleasure to have you. And I really loved the discussion on charter schools. Yeah, of course. Anytime, Nando. If you want to take a break, you know, just hit me up. Love it. Love it. All right, everyone. Have an awesome weekend. Make sure that you like and share this stream and make sure you're subscribed to both the channel and Jacobin Magazine. We love you. Have an awesome long weekend and we'll see you soon. 